Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. I'm so happy to be back in my groove after being MIA from my podcast for quite some time now. But it's for a really good reason. I've been traveling extensively over the last month or so, which is my love, my zen, my happy place. I took a trip to Laguna Beach, California for an absolutely extraordinarily gorgeous wedding, which was wonderful. I came back home to New York and then took a one-week trip to Cuba, Havana, Cuba, and then embarked on one of the adventures of my lifetime to Egypt. In Egypt, we landed in Cairo and spent a few days there. We stood at the base of the Great Pyramids and also rode camels around the pyramids. So you can only imagine how beautiful and profound that experience was. When I got back home, I tried to explain it to my friends and family and I really just don't have the words. We stayed in Cairo for a few days and then we flew from Cairo to Luxor and visited some monuments and historic sites in Luxor and then boarded a Nile cruise down the Nile and stopped at different places, one of them being the Valley of Kings, which is where King Tutankhamun and so many other great pharaohs and goddesses have their tombs. I think that was definitely one of the highlights of my trip is going into the tomb of King Tut and not only seeing his actual tomb, but his mummy as well. That was a really, really, really profound, powerful moment for me. After the Valley of Kings, we continued down the Nile and visited a Nubian village, which was such a beautiful village and had the opportunity to engage with Nubian people and experience tea in someone's home as well as some delicious hummus. Oh my goodness, you cannot get better hummus than in Egypt. At the end of the cruise, we boarded a plane again and flew from Asawan back to Cairo and then from Cairo back home. But yes, please go visit Egypt. You must. That is something that everyone must experience. Right now, I'm honored to be working with a private school in Brooklyn, New York to host a six-day workshop that I titled Little Rock Nine, Ruby Bridges and Me. And I have the golden opportunity to develop lessons and workshops for K through sixth graders, which makes up the entire school. It's been so refreshing and invigorating to speak to young people. I feel like I'm so in touch when I'm around young people and I'm absorbing the things that they're thinking about and what's important to them and their perception of the civil rights movement and continuum, how it's relevant in their lives today. So that's been a wonderful project that I'm excited about being involved in. That's enough about me. I just wanted to give you a brief update on what I've been up to, but now let's move forward and move toward introducing you to our wonderful guest, Destiny Mabry, who she and I met in a women of color empowerment support therapy group. So I invited Destiny to be my guest in light of Mental Health Awareness Month. We are both avid proponents of therapy and speak pretty open about our experiences. Destiny Mabry is an educator, motivational speaker, activist, rapper, and comedian actress from Bronx, New York. She has been featured on MTV News, BET, National Public Radio, and NYC Media. Destiny is passionate about facing social issues head on. She feels it's important for everyone, especially youth, to know they have the power to be a catalyst for change within their communities and themselves. 
She currently works as a community educator, facilitating workshops to youth throughout the city. In addition, she performs comedy and rap throughout the tri-state. The content and discussion in this podcast will necessarily engage with racism, domestic violence, and experiences of emotional and physical trauma. My intention is to provide a platform for which we can all engage bravely, empathetically, and thoughtfully with difficult content. Please join me in welcoming Destiny Mabry. Destiny, thank you so very much for joining me on the Roots of the Spirit podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy. I'm so excited to have an opportunity to talk to you about your background and the work that you're doing. Super powerful and awesome, and I'm super inspired by you. There's so much to talk about, so thank you so much. Absolutely. As you may know, I established the Roots of the Spirit podcast because I have a strong passion to have honest conversations about identity, race, racism, and social justice. I thought it would be wonderful to have an opportunity to talk to you in light of the fact that May is Mental Health Awareness Month, which unbeknownst to me was founded in 1949 by the Mental Health America organization, then known as the National Association for Mental Health. But I have to be honest with you, I was not aware that it had been in existence for so long. Me either. One of the things that I like to talk about when I have a guest on the podcast is how we came to know each other. I feel like you and I have a unique story in how we met. I don't remember the exact year now. I feel like it was either 2015 or 2016, but we were seeing the same therapist at the time and my therapist started a support group for black women and uh, we were both there and when you came I always got so excited because I love spirit <laughs> and yeah like I feel like we we just created a, a genuine sisterhood and it was always just but it always brought me like a lot of joy I think we've we've known each other for yeah like three or four years so when I first moved to New York I was seeking a therapist and I know it sounds very strange but I'm super, super, super an energy person. So I literally identified our therapist, our shared therapist on psychology today. And I literally went off vibe off the internet. You, you never told me that before. I had no idea. The cool thing about our therapist, the therapist that we met through, you were having individual sessions. I was having my own individual sessions. And I think at a certain point, maybe a year after I started, you may have been there longer. But he told me that he... He had found through a variety of his clients, women of color in particular, that there were very common threads, concerns, and experiences, and he thought of launching a group, a support group. I was just really excited that he found that commonality. So I have to say, ditto, ditto, ditto. I remember like our earliest group meetings, and I remember being really, really excited to meet you and the other women in the group. Such a unique way that we met. I feel very fortunate to have said that because I didn't go to see my therapist with the hopes of being in the support group. Like that wasn't a connection that I made. It was just like, I'm just trying to get over this trauma because I got a lot. Praise sister. <laughs> Not you, <Right>. me, us. <laughs> Yeah, like I was, it just added like a different element of healing. It was dope. We established how we came to know each other. I'm very happy to say that we're friends and we've been friends for a few years now. I think that you have a very powerful experience, life experience, and I would love for you to talk about that. Where were you born and raised? What about your parents and your grandparents? We have to go back first. So I would love for you to take us back. I was born and raised in the Bronx. My parents are both black. 
my grandfather and my grandmother were both from down south. My grandfather is from Maryland and my grandmother is from Georgia. So we got all of the all of the southern loveness. But both of my parents were born in New York. So I'm not a hundred percent sure why exactly my grandfather moved to New York. I know that he was a swing dancer. So performing arts has always been in my family, mainly dance. So swing dance or African dance or hip hop dance. We're just like a dancing family. If we have an event and no one dances, something is wrong. <laughs> like that, that's <laughs> never a thing. So we're very based in like like music and movement. I would say the same thing for my grandmother too. I don't really, I, I don't think she ever told me directly why they came to New York, her and her siblings. So I actually don't know. You know what? My grandma's coming up here for the summer. So I'm going to ask him. My grandfather passed away when I was uh, probably like 14. So I don't have that many memories of him. I just remember he was always super suave. <laughs> like from what I remember, he was getting perms until he died. Like he was like, like hair slicked back. He had on like the tap dancing looking shoes. He was always like a fly fly guy like like a pretty boy back in his day and my grandmother was very uh, very traditional she still is I always wondered like how they got together because he was apparently you know just like doing his own thing and my grandmother was very like I said very very traditional so I was always interested in how they even met same thing with my mother and my father my father was not a dancer he was just he was he was definitely a street boy <laughs> Street man and my mother is not. So I'm always, I don't want to say amazed. Yeah, I'm amazed slash like, I, I'm always wondering like, mommy, how did you end up with daddy? Like they're just, they're just so two completely different people. I think they, they both met in the Bronx. I'm the only child that they, that they share together. And he was from Harlem and she, she's from the Bronx. And I believe they met at my mom's job, something like that. And they were only together for a few years. My father did pass away when I was 19. And that definitely took more of a toll on me than I thought. Like when my father passed away, any time I would talk about my father, I would always say it, whatever I was saying, like jokingly. And even if I was talking about my father, I can only talk about him for like no more than two minutes without crying. Just recently, I would say probably like 2017, I got to a point where I could speak about my father for a longer amount of time without feeling like my voice was cracking or like I'm about to cry. And I and I know now it's because I had so much hurt like bottled up inside because um, for maybe probably when, from like 10 to 17 me and my father didn't have the best relationship because once I got to a point where I was seeing his behavior for myself and not just like a small child it was like oh no I don't I don't want to be around around you because like I said he was very hood very street there were times when I feel like he he just wanted to be a father when he felt like it Mm. so in between those years we didn't have the best relationship so the last year and a half of his life I actually wrote him a letter it was like a 10 page letter and he read it of course and then after that we had a healthier relationship and then he died a year and a half after that and I think that created a lot of resentment towards him and that was actually the first time that I was ever like mad at God because I don't really like directly feel like oh I'm mad at God but at that time, I felt like, Dad, how are you going to take him when? When we finally starting to, like, rebuild, you know? But now I understand, you know, it was it's selfish for me to want to have wanted him to stay because he was, he was sick. Yeah. So I don't want my father to suffer, of course, but 
I was still like, you know, I, I would have wanted to have more years with him. And in terms of my mother, me and my mother have always been like really close. She's a very, 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 very nurturing mother. She has four kids. It's my oldest sister, my second to oldest sister, me, and then my brother. Uh, I would say for for a huge portion of our life, particularly with the girls, she raised us on her own. She's always been like a like a single mom. My, my brother's father helped to raise my brother a lot, but for the girls, it was mainly like my mom doing most of the most of the raising. Even though we did struggle, you know, um, came from the projects. So my mother always, always showed us a lot of love. My mother was one of those parents that was always at the parent teacher conferences, always on the field trips, always volunteering. So she's always been active in any community that she's in. She's a teacher. And now, like, I teach, and not in the same way, but I think that that's kind of in our DNA at this point, like educating people. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely feel I, I, I take after that from my mother. My mother's also like extremely silly. Like she plays all the time. And my father was the same way. And maybe worse than my Not maybe. He was definitely sillier than, than my mother. So that was like another thing that I feel I just kind of inherited. Just like me being a people person, having a sense of humor and educating people. Those are things that I just feel are just in my DNA at this point. Can you talk to me a bit about what it was like growing up in the Bronx with your parents and your family? For most of the time, I grew up with my mom. I never, I never, never, ever lived with my father. I would say I saw my father maybe like once or twice a month. We lived in a, in the projects. And to me, living in the projects was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Cause like it, it was just going outside and double dutch and being black and being a child. And, and I honestly, cause I thought about this the other day. I didn't really like me other than my teachers because most of my teachers were white. But other than that, like everything else around me was just black. To this day, I listen to all of the music that my mom played in the house. Like, I have Earth, Wind & Fire on my playlist and Stevie Wonder. I love Stevie Wonder. But, like, all of that comes from my mom. My mother would mainly do, like, the the house cleaning on Sundays. She would blast Diana Ross and Stevie and everybody from, like, the oldies but goodies stage and that's kind of just like implanted in us. I have a pretty big family. I have a whole bunch of cousins. We're all like kind of separated now because everybody like moved away and stuff. But as a child, we always had really big Thanksgivings and Kwanzaa. And Kwanzaa has always been like a, not even a second thought in our family. We always celebrated Kwanzaa. My aunt actually introduced it to our family. She's very Afrocentric. So we've been celebrating that for more than 20 years at this point. I don't, I can't think of a year when we did not have Kwanzaa. We, we've always had Kwanzaa. So we always had the Christmas, the Kwanzaa. Easter is really big in our family as well. Family stuff. So I'm, I'm extremely family-oriented. I value family, like, so much because mm-hmm. it's literally, like, my, my foundation. When is the first time that you became aware of the color of your skin? That I don't know. I can't, I can't think of an actual time when I knew that I was Black because I was always surrounded by people that looked like me. Whether they were a little bit darker than me or a little lighter than me, my complexion, we were always Black. The most we had that was different was maybe like someone that was Puerto Rican or Dominican, but most of the time it was even just Puerto Rican. 
yeah, most of, most of my teachers were white. But I remember, even still, my favorite teacher of, like, all time was a Black woman. Her name is Miss Williams, and we're still cool to this day. Love you, Miss Williams. She created a different experience for me teaching-wise than I never had. And now that I'm older, I understand why. Because I saw myself in my teacher, which I've never felt that way before. So for example, like I remember one weekend, like a different pair of Tims came out and a bunch of the girls in the in my eighth grade class came to school on Monday with the Tims and she had on the Tims too. Like she was just like, she was just like down like that. Or like she would speak to us like really real. I didn't understand one until I became an educator myself, but two also until I got older, like I related to her so much because she was black. She was a black teacher. She had dread she, she listened to hip-hop she had tims like she was us and we were her at the time i don't know if i i felt like that i just thought she was like the best teacher of all time and i would say like i was just chilling with her like last month when we were supposed to go out to dinner like maybe last week she's the only teacher that i still keep in contact with wow so that says a lot yeah like she she's amazing and she's she's so real and now that I'm older I see like why that is so needed to have teachers that look like you or even if you're a teacher that doesn't look like your participants or your students it is up to you to bring guest speakers in that do look like them or to give them books of authors that look like them. This is a common narrative that people of color oftentimes don't see themselves reflected in a variety of facets of society, but specifically in educational settings. And I think it's right. so important, especially like for you to speak on your experience so that teachers who listen to this podcast can gain knowledge on techniques and resources and how to make it better. I am a healthy relationships educator now. So what I do is I go throughout New York City and I educate young people on healthy relationships. And I remember, I actually, that's actually not true. She's not the only teacher that I keep in contact with. Because I actually went to go speak at my English teacher's class. But we're not like close, close to where I am with Miss Williams. So my English teacher found out that I do these workshops and she requested them for her school. And I was scheduled to go to her school once a week for two weeks. So the first week that I came, the students like loved me. And then the next week that I came, she was like, they've been asking for you not only every single day, but she was like, she told me two students' names. And let, let's just say the name were like Chris and Jessica. She was like, Chris and Jessica specifically were so eager for you to come back. They don't participate that much in class. So to see them this eager means a lot. That's amazing. And I, I spoke to her after the class and I was like, there's no coincidence that the two people that you named were both black students and this is a predominantly white school. Is she white? She's a white woman, yeah. Okay, so she's a white woman who teaches and most of her students are white. I would say a huge chunk. Maybe like 65% of her students are, are white. How did she receive that message? She was listening. She was listening. For most privileges that I can like think of in my head, like these are beyond my control, you know, like being born black. Obviously, you know, like being born black is not something that I, you know, that, that I picked up at the deli, you know what I'm saying? But, <laughs> you know, but if you are a white person, you can't control that you were born white. But 
it's up to you to create, you know, spaces where the people that you are holding a space for all feel comfortable and represented. The only book that I remember reading in high school, like really well, meaning as in like, I remember the context of the chapters was A Raisin in the Sun. And again, there's no coincidence that the only book that I thoroughly remember is written by a Black author. So you know what I'm saying? Like all of these connections are like race related. How about history? Did you see yourself reflected in elementary, high school or college? Uh, elementary up until like the eighth grade, I would say we learned like the common ones of Black history, the Martin Luther King, the Rosa Parks, the Frederick Douglass. I would say that was pretty consistent throughout most of my academic career. In college, though, I was in Africana Studies. So I graduated with a, with a bachelor's in communications and Africana Studies. So that was when I remember taking the most classes that were like rooted in African-American culture. Do you recall the history that you learned throughout your educational track to be white-centric? Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't see it as that way, but yeah, like I said, like all of all of our books were like like white authors. My teachers were white. The lessons were history, but a very shortened version of history. Oh, that was another thing that I didn't add, and I definitely should have added this. A lot of the black history that I learned, I learned from my aunt because the same one that like introduced Kwanzaa to our family. So I always grew up knowing my blackness, like my aunt. You know how a lot in a lot of people's family, they have like the rich aunt. We always saw her as like the rich aunt. She she would take us to go see The Lion King on Broadway. She would take us to see Alvin Ailey. My aunt made me watch Glory when I was seven. We always joke about that because I'm like, I want to watch Family Matters. And you're making me watch movies about slavery. Sounds and like I'm, my family. Yeah. And she would say, don't get up from the couch until you finish the movie. We watched like Malcolm X and the Tina Turner story and all of these black films were watched at my my aunt's house. And we always joke about that now because it's like, Auntie Sarah, I was really seven. <laughs> you were making me <laughs> watch Denzel. And what I remember the most out of that movie was when he got beat. You know, like, it's like, Auntie Pat, that's the, that's the memory that I have. So we, we just always, like, joke about that. But my Blackness was always a part of my life because of my aunt and not because of school. I feel such a kinship to that experience. And I feel like I see the pros and I also see the other side, which is it shouldn't be the responsibility of our mm -hmm. enlightened family members to have to, to, to provide that experience and that history. But it oh, often I agree. is... Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think, what if like I didn't have that aunt? Or what if people don't have an aunt that is heavily rooted in her, her roots? Exactly. Then like, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do? You know? So like, now that I'm older, I, I see all of these things now, now that I got older. Because like I said, as a child, it's like, I'm annoyed that you're making me watch this. But as an adult, I'm like, wow, I don't even know how much of my blackness I would know if I didn't have my aunt, you know? And it wasn't like my mom didn't teach me about blackness. I would say most of my mom's, like, teaching was through, like, music and stuff. But my mom was raising three kids on her own, going to school full-time to get her master's and working full-time. But I do feel very fortunate to have an aunt like my aunt. When I think back at, like, my school experience, it just seems like a lot of it was based off of memory. How, how much can you remember for the state test? 
And then after you take the test, you don't walk away remembering 100% of what you've been taught. I've come to learn that there are so many rich stories that are related to our history that are infused with math, science, from Africa who were studying astronomy and science and the ocean and creating calendars and all of these things that are really exciting and interesting, they're completely left out. And in addition to that, I feel like one of the issues is that the the Black experience in America, it's relegated to Black history. It's put in a box and shoved in the closet. Whereas if we were actually honest and we talked about history that includes everyone that's here right now and how Black people are at the very foundation and founding of building mm-hmm. a country, then it would be a completely different narrative and it wouldn't mm-hmm. be afterthought. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, like not cramming it into 28 days and then forgetting about it. How did you enter the career path that you are currently in? And can you give a description of what you're up to now? I started doing healthy relationships education in 2014. In 2014, well, in 2013, I had just ended a very, very abusive relationship and I was still coping and dealing with that. And then about six months later, in January of 2014, um, my family found out that my sister was actually murdered by by her husband and he killed her and their two children and himself. I just want to say how incredibly sorry that I am that you and your family have had this experience. And I remember the first time hearing your story in our support group and it it touched and moved me so much. And I was in awe of your courage and your strength and your power and journey toward healing, just how you were able to move forward and get to a place where you decided that part of your calling, if if you would use that description, is to speak out and be a voice for change. So um, after that, I started doing a lot of public speaking, advocacy work, and it just really, it was just so unfortunate because uh, you know how people call you to give their condolences. So many people were saying to me like, yeah, you know, like um, I'm also like watching my sister's kids and she's in the situation and it was a bunch of like oh I know someone in the situation I know someone in the situation I know someone in the situation and it's like so nobody's gonna be like talking about this so mm-hmm. I felt like I could have either lost my mind because my sister out of all four of us me and my sister were the closest we were the two middle children and of course it was out of nowhere we were completely in shock and my sister was very young she's 28 so I felt like I could have either like gone crazy or I could just speak about this experience so that it doesn't keep happening to other people. So I've been doing that, not directly sharing my story. I don't really do that anymore. Like I, I used to do a lot of public speaking engagements, sharing my story, but then I started teaching workshops on healthy relationships in general. So basically going into the like prevention side. So I'm trying to give you the information so that you don't end up in a situation like me or a situation like like my sister. So those conversations involve like 
What does respect and trust and equality look like? What does consent look like? How do you break up with someone? How do you act one out? And all these conversations are extremely interactive. And in the process of me doing that work, I actually became celibate because I got into another abusive relationship after my sister was was killed. And now that I think back, I'm like, yeah, that might not have been the best time to get in a relationship because it was almost right after I found out that my sister got murdered. So it's like, I'm very, very broken and I attracted someone else also very broken. And we were just two broken people trying to pick up each other's pieces and that was not working. So after that relationship ended, that's when I decided to become celibate. And as a result of my celibacy, I I became more creative. As I said, you know, I come from a family of performers. Performing has always been a thing in my family. So I've been performing since I was seven, actually six, because I used to like dance on my block. But um, so as a result of that, I started doing rap and comedy. So I talk about, you know, real issues, but I just put it behind a beat or I put it in my set. And that's becoming like a another type of, of healing for me. And I honestly, I, I don't think I would be as creative as I was if I did not become celibate because I was giving so much time to relationships that were draining me. So now that I'm not doing that anymore, I have more time to like be my full self. You spoke about trauma growing up and then this incredibly devastating life-altering experience happens to your family. How were you able to move forward and then create art for change or use your voice in various ways so that you can prevent this from happening again? Before my family like experienced that loss, I was already seeing a social worker um, because I was in an abusive relationship at the, well, I had just gotten out of an abusive relationship. So I had already kind of been doing some work on my mental health around then. And then when that happened, maybe a couple months later, as I was speaking to my social worker, I remember I was sharing other experiences that had nothing to do with that exact abusive relationship. And she was like, I can't help you at this point and I think you should go not I can't help you but it was more like I'm not equipped to unpack these other things that you are discussing because they were things from my childhood so she was saying she is the one that connected me to my now therapist the one that we shared I've only dated or seriously dated black men my whole life so I told her of course about my my first abusive relationship and then my sister's husband my brother-in-law, he killed my sister. He's also a black man. So when she said that she was going to like recommend me to a therapist and it was a black man, I was like, in my head, I didn't say this out loud, but in my head, I'm like, how does that make sense when I just told you <laughs> that like all of these black men have hurt me and my family? Mm-hmm. But, and I think this is why it's so important to have people around you that you trust and can rely on because I trusted her so much that is why I went to my current therapist. Cause I'm like, if you're going to recommend me to him, even after what I share with you, he, he must be that good. And he is, I wouldn't have gone to him. If I looked on psychology today and saw it myself, I would have been like, Nope, he's a man and kept scrolling. I probably would have like gone to see a black woman, but I do. Now I see how having a black man as a therapist helps me because it provides me with a positive representation of black men that I'm not used to seeing. So 
I'm very, very grateful that she made that recommendation and even grateful that I didn't like back out and say, oh, no, I'm not going to go. When I go see my therapist, I see him every week still. And I've made some of the biggest breakthroughs in my sessions. And what I love most about my therapist is that not only does he listen, but he also holds me accountable. He's not the type of person to say, oh, I'm so glad, like, I'm so sad you're experiencing that. How does that make you feel? I feel like that's like a stereotype of how people think therapists are. But he's also like, well, Destiny, isn't this something that you expressed before in the sense of this person acts the same way? So one of my weaknesses is that I struggle with acceptance. Meaning like, I'm always like, why can't you just see what I'm saying? And it's like, because that person doesn't want to see and I can't make them see, you know, and my therapist has helped me a lot with that. So I appreciate again, that he holds me accountable in the same way that he holds the people accountable that harm me, you know, because there are some things that are within my control. Even now that I'm like single and not dating anyone, I'm still in therapy because I feel like if I'm doing something that's good, why would I stop going? Like, I didn't just go to him to get out of my relationships, you know? But while I was in my relationship, especially my last one, it was like going to see my therapist and then going to be with you or just, just not working, <laughs> you know? Like, it's, it, just, it was just very counterproductive, you know? So that was a process like many other relationships are a process I, didn't, I couldn't just like end it but it was just it was more like a gradual like stepping away like yeah this is not gonna be a a thing like it's literally like I'm trying to think of a of an analogy it's kind of like I banged like my foot on the table right and and bruised myself really bad and I go to the hospital and they like wrap up my my leg and help me heal. And then I go home and I kick the same exact table on purpose. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like I'm healing and going back to my source of hurt at the same time. That wasn't, that wasn't a thing, <laughs> you know? So, and also like you might, you might be focused on one thing and think that one thing is the, the root issue or whatever. And then it's like another stone gets unturned. There's so much trauma. I've, I've truly believe like just by nature of being a person of color in the United States, let alone the other traumas that can be added in life experience. And I think that one of the things that I found phenomenal about this particular therapist is that he, he was grounded. He has a great foundation of history and the traumas that are inflicted on the bodies, minds, and souls of Black people. And I feel like that's very unique. The fact that he himself is a Black man lives and thrives in this society and has experienced challenges, it's almost like what you were saying about the teacher. I felt a kinship. I also felt very heard and understood in my sessions, it, whereas I haven't felt that level with other therapists that were not people of color. And I'm wondering right. if you had a similar experience. I am just now, meaning as you are saying this out of your mouth, realizing like that's probably another reason why I connected to him the way I did. I would say I went to like four other therapists before him. Like I was going to therapy since I was a teenager, but I used to only go when I was young because they gave me a Metro card. Like I didn't really like going. 
it wasn't I, like I hated sitting in the waiting room because I, I just felt like not sane. I, I didn't like being in that space at all. And all of my therapists were like white women. And I never really connected to them. Like I said, I really just went for the Metro cards that they that they gave me. Now that you're saying that, that probably is why I connect to him so much because he's black, you know, and he can, like you said, mirror those experiences and he's he's very 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 educated and very like you said grounded in in us he's someone that i know like genuinely wants the people that he services to thrive and i see that it's not just like oh let me take out a pen and paper and write down like you're my case study like I, he doesn't write at all in my sessions and that's also something that i'm not used to i'm used to like them always having a, a pen and paper out like writing like I was some like case study and I hated that. Yeah. He only did that that he only did that one time and that was for like my intake process, which means like the first time I saw him to get an idea of who I was, a pen and paper ever again. So like even after our sessions he'll like send me articles on like managing your anger and stuff. Like he he's actively trying to give me information to to make me a better person. And I think that going to therapy has really reshaped how I saw the relationship with my father because I was I spent so many years being mad at my father. And I remember, and this is why it's also important to have friends that really hold you accountable. There was one time I was having a conversation with my friends and I think I had shared a story with her that I had shared previously. And she was just like, yo, how long are you going to be mad at your father? Mm. And I wasn't mad at her for saying that to me, but it, it was just like, damn, may, maybe I should, I should think about that. So I went to therapy and I was like, I think we should actually just spend a couple sessions just talking about my father. Because what I can say in terms of anyone's trauma whether you're black white gay straight a lot of times the trauma that we experience or the emotions that we feel right now stem from something that our parents did like 20 years ago mm-hmm. for example most of the men that i dated are almost exact replicas of my father yeah street dudes hood like womanizing Toward the end of my father's life, he basically started to become a different man. And I was never holding on to that. I was always holding on to the to the pre-daddy in terms of like him being irresponsible and unaccountable and dishonest and coming to get me whenever he felt like it. But toward the end, he actually, I, I feel like that was one of the best gifts that he gave me. I feel like he started to model what I need to see in my husband. In the sense of like, he started taking care of his mental health. He became way more accountable. He started to spend more time with me. And it was like genuine time. He wasn't doing uh, drugs anymore. And I felt like that, what he left me with was that. I felt like my father created a bridge in the sense of like, this is what you need to see in your future husband. Your husband has to take accountability for his mental health before he meets you like i'm spirit i'm so tired <laughs> of rage oh here goes destiny i want to <laughs> one thing i want to say uh i had uh i think it was it was a simple meme or something to that effect but right now i'm really trying to dive deep into the impact of intergenerational trauma and i think mm-hmm. this meme popped out at me that i saw the other day and it said something like did you ever consider that your parents were 
in their own process. I think oftentimes when we're young people or children, we look at our parents like, but you're supposed to be fixed. You're supposed to be whole. You're supposed to not be broken. You're not supposed to pass on this trauma. But because, Mm -hmm. again, of our traumatic, tumultuous history, that we now have the knowledge of the fact that intergenerational trauma is real. And we have the tools and resources, whereas maybe our parents didn't, we can break that chain. Absolutely. I am so passionate. Like, I don't say this, but I am so serious about, like, breaking generational curses in my family. Like, my father was definitely going through his own process because he also had a father that was very, very absent. Same thing with my mother. So all of these cycles are continuing I want to do my best because there's no such thing as like a hundred percent like healed person. That energy that you felt toward a specific trauma in your life is just channeled in a different way. You know, like that energy never goes away. Does that make sense? Totally. I'm reading this book called It Didn't Start With You and it's about intergenerational trauma, like the psychology, but also the physiology in our bodies and our brains running through our bodies at all times. And one of the the things that he speaks about, which was like a light bulb to me, the author said that oftentimes we look at the, the trauma and the intergenerational trauma stemming from enslavement and how that manifests itself in our lives today. We look at it, I mean, for what it's worth, because it's very negative manifestations. But he also points out that it also instills and an incredible, profound strength that would not be there otherwise. And so I had never really focused on the positive because uh-huh. it's so painful, so hurtful. But exactly is like a silver lining. That really like hit me, struck me. And I think I think even it actually like hurts me to only think about things in a negative way. And I mean that like emotionally and physically. And that's why I was so adamant about like forgiving my father because like I cannot only just hate my dad because if I did, there's no way, like it is impossible for me to be in a healthy relationship if I feel that way toward my father. It's impossible. And I, there's, how am I going to break that generational curse if I'm carrying all of that anger towards someone that this year died 10 years ago. Like my father is no longer here. So I cannot, oh, I hate him. Oh, oh, he doesn't exist and this. I feel like people say a lot of cliches I don't necessarily believe. I don't know if I fully believe that my father did his best, but I do believe that my father did love me in his own weird way. I was my father's like only girl. And he was always so proud of like me and my name. Like whenever we were like outside, so we would be in the street. And he'd be like, "Yo, what's up? Oh, look at your little daughter. She's adorable." And he'd be like, "Yeah, you know, her name is a uh, Destiny Wayne Genesis. Means meant to live from the beginning." Like he would always, always just like, "It's my, it's my little daughter. This my, this, this is like his gem." You know, and like, like I said, my father he didn't show up to every graduation or whatever, but. My father did care about me and my father was healing from a lot of trauma. As I said, he was, he was on drugs. He used drugs to like heal from that. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to use drugs and alcohol and even sex. And that's why I stopped having it because it's like, I'm using that and getting into these BS relationships instead of like really unpacking what it is that I need to, to unpack. I can't break a generational curse without forgiving my dad, specifically my father. 
even though my father hurt me, my father was like my homie, you know, like that was my, my homie, you know? So I don't want to, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have the best relationship with him, but it could have been worse. He could have like denied me, which there was no denying. I look exactly like him, <laughs> but it's like my father did love me in his way, you know? And maybe he loved me in a way that he was shown love. I took that. I learned from that. And I'll know how to be with my children. You describe yourself as a believer, activist, educator, comedian, rapper. In short, I've just found different avenues to tell my story. Comedy is basically like my life, just with like a fun spin on it. When I was like 15, I actually got diagnosed as being like a smiley depressant. So I like hide behind jokes and smiles and like I'm really like hurting. I remember the therapist that I was telling you about before with the free metro card, she, she told me that and I never forgot that. So now that I see myself like doing comedy, it's like I'm doing it from a whole nother like angle. Because as you said, I have a foundation that's built on like healing and telling my story. So I, I'm definitely like a very creative person and I always try to find creative interactive ways of saying a message so people can say you know like oh domestic violence is bad don't hit people and don't mentally abuse them and that might not be received in the same way that a rap would because it has a beat to it you know so like I just found different ways to share messages that apply to my life and current events so yeah I, I write my own raps I write my own comedy sets and I do education for um, healthy relationships and even though I'm given a curriculum I still put like my own spin on it because Nobody going back to childhood, like you're not going to effectively learn from someone that you do not see yourself in. Whether it doesn't even have to be just race, like even being silly, like, oh, this, this person is funny. And the way they said it registered to me. I'm going to remember that. I remember when I did my first show, I think that was a show that you came to. And I said a joke about like one of my past relationships. And I remember after the show, a gay man came up to me and he was like, I went through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that meant so much to me because it's like you were able to see yourself in something that I said. And you'll remember that because you related to it. So whether it's be rapping or speaking or doing comedy, another thing that I pride myself on is like being a truth teller, being transparent about a situation so I, I find that that also like resonates with people well because we live in a world that doesn't like the truth we live in a world that's very I would rather you like butter it up a little bit but if I butter it up so much how are you going to get the get the message you know so I believe in like different ways to deliver the medicine of course but it's like medicine is still medicine so I want you to to get what I'm saying but I also want you to like laugh you know I don't want to drill the information into your head you know I want it to be like an, an interactive experience you're using a variety of different techniques to get the same message across roots of the spirit after the colon is our stories our power so well aligned with everything you've said and especially like using your gifts and talents to tell a story and that story resonating with people and having power and impact 
So what is your mantra? Being yourself. Like that is so cliche. And I feel like certain things you just kind of wear out. But when you are yourself and you're like grounded in who you are, like so many things come to you and you have so much to give because you know who you are, you know your story and you can impact so many lives just by like being yourself. So like, for example, I was just talking to my friend about this the other day, like me being a celibate woman, celibacy is really associated with people that do not look and act like me, at least from what I've seen. Like rap and celibacy are barely ever in the same sentence, Mm -hmm. but that's who I am, you know? So I can't be this like skirt wearing church girl that you saw on TV because I go to church, but I don't like my skirts. So like, that's not me. So I, I have found that the more I am myself, the more opportunities come to me when I'm trying to be somebody else stagnant I use a hashtag authenticity has longevity just because every Mm -hmm. sometimes it's very difficult to get to your true authentic self because there's so much layered on top of you but once you get to it it is so empowering and beautiful destiny what are the roots of your spirit (laughs) I should have known that you were gonna ask me that but I'm like chipped up the roots of my spirit God Family, blackness, womanhood, transparency, respect, pizza. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my goodness, it's been absolutely fabulous having this conversation. I cannot thank you enough. Really, everything we just talked about in terms of your mantra and your spirit and your philosophies and the work that you're doing, very powerful, hard work giving so much of yourself but you are so authentic and you are so destiny and it it shines through so brightly girl thank you so do you making me all like so true. you know this you know this this is how i feel about you i and like that's why i was like you have to be on the podcast because you have an energy that draws people in so it's very powerful and impactful so i have to thank you a lot so how can people get up with you my Instagram is destiny, like the word, destiny.mabry. Follow me on Instagram. I just wrapped up my show, but I may be getting another one in the very, very near future. But if you follow my Instagram, then you'll be on to all of the new stuff. Um, yeah, follow me. Let's talk, let's bond, let's laugh, let's cry, and all that stuff. <laughs> I I know I'll be saying this to you all the time, but like you were really named Spirit for a reason because you have one of the most genuine, open, sweet spirits like I've ever met in my life. Like anytime you came into group, I would always like light up like Spirit. <laughs> so sweet. Like you have an energy that like so many people need, and I. And just excited to see what's in store for you as well. You know, like Aww. you popping. I love you. Thank you so much. You don't understand. That's super, super, super meaningful. Thank you. You're so awesome. I love you too.